Hello. I'm in Whiteham Woods in Oxfordshire here in the UK. It's late summer and the forest is alive with colour and wildlife. There are around 3 trillion trees on the earth today and many of these are quietly taking carbon dioxide out of the air we breathe. They're emitting oxygen and they're locking carbon into wood and soil. Now, when it comes to thinking about the fight against climate change, this is significant. Scientists recently suggested that increasing the Earth's forests by an area roughly the size of the USA could cut atmospheric carbon by 25%. Trees and plants have always been the silent guardians of life on Earth, but could they also be the key to our future? I'm Kunal Dutta and you're listening to the Energy Podcast brought to you by Shell. Now in this series we've previously looked at carbon capture and storage, but here's something slightly different. It's been suggested that by planting billions of trees, among many other measures, we might stand a chance of removing enough carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to actually address climate change. These are the restoration projects that are saving us against climate change and biodiversity loss. Debate is still rife over quite how much carbon trees can remove from the atmosphere. And some argue that schemes are just a nature-based novelty or could even be used as a get-out-of-jail-free card and delay moves to reduce overall fossil fuel usage. Today I'm going to separate hype from hope and fact from fiction. We're going to ask whether tree planting can really tackle climate change and if so, what effect can it have? Now, I'm joined here by Natalie Seddon, a professor of biodiversity at Oxford University and director of the Nature-Based Solutions Initiative, and Duncan McLaren, the former chief executive of Friends of the Earth Scotland and currently at Lancaster University, where he's researching the justice implications of climate engineering. Let's start with just the basics. We're standing in a forest here in Oxfordshire. Trees have probably been around millions of years. Why is it that we're only talking about planting trees as a solution to climate change in 2019. Natalie. I think a major thing that's happening in our world now is that finally the climate change communities and the biodiversity conservation communities are coming together and they are coming together with the development communities as well. And finally people in business and in government are acknowledging that we cannot tackle climate change without dealing with biodiversity loss and we're certainly not going to stem the tide of biodiversity loss without tackling climate change. And so it's in this space that dealing with the causes and consequences of climate change have been gaining prominence. Duncan, the stars are aligning on various different things, including public awareness, growing activism around the climate change issue. What else is it? Well, Natalie's highlighted the the positive take on this, that it's bringing together the issue of wildlife loss with the issue of climate change. I'd have a slightly more sceptical view that actually tree planting as a climate issue has been around as long as I've worked on the climate. The reason it's come to the fore now has more to do with the politics of our collective failure to deliver emissions reductions. Natalie, I saw you nodding vigorously there. Absolutely. Obviously, number one priority is to decarbonise the economy. There's been a lot of amazing science conducted in the last few years, and this has revealed that 25% of greenhouse gas emissions come from the land sector. So they come from the transformation of natural ecosystems into agriculture. And if we're to achieve net zero, 
emissions reductions by you know within a meaningful time frame we need to address that we need to you know look after our lands we need to scale up ecosystem stewardship now i want to just make a point here is that we've launched into a conversation about tree planting but you know trees are one part of the ecosystem and forests and woodlands are up are one of a whole range of vitally important ecosystems. So when I talk about nature-based solutions, I'm not necessarily talking about tree planting. I'm talking about restoring natural ecosystems, restoring mangrove forests, which are the big carbon powerhouses on the planet, um, restoring natural wetlands, and I'm emphasizing restoration rather than tree planting. One of the big problems we face is all this excitement for the role of nature-based solutions in addressing climate change is really, really being channeled towards tree planting, Mm. often on naturally treeless habitats and often with single um, exotic species, so big eucalyptus plantations or big pine plantations in areas that don't naturally have trees. And often these areas can be very carbon rich. It's a really good point because if we look at the recent headlines particularly, just take a few, for example, tree planting has mind-blowing potential to tackle climate crisis or best way to fight climate change, plant a trillion trees. All this stuff sounds great, but how much is there in all that? Those headlines are good in the sense that they sharpen people's awareness of the importance of working with natural systems to address global challenges, but they're dangerous in the sense that they might lead to vast you know, monoculture plantations which actually won't do very many people or the planet much good over the long term. What does it actually take to implement this in practice? Duncan, let me give that one to you. Before I say what needs to happen, I think we need to recognise that the the best studies show significantly less potential than some of the recent claims for tree planting. And for to even get what is promised in the best studies, it means working with landowners, working with indigenous peoples, working with the people who use those lands and forests for decades to ensure not only that carbon is accumulating but that it's stored over time personally i think trees are great i want more of them they provide shade they help with um, water management they're wonderful for wildlife we should be getting more of them and incentivizing more of them in collaboration with the people who live in and work in forests regardless of whether they help the climate or not And we should be doing the things to cut emissions, regardless of whether people are managing forests better. Yes. And and who should lead that charge? Is it government-led? Is it companies? I I think it has to be government-led or even people-led. I think we're only going to see climate change solutions coming up from the bottom. I'm a great fan of the idea of citizens' assemblies, as it's been promoted recently. The reason I don't think it can be corporate-led is because corporate-led tree planting has a history of offsetting. And offsetting is a huge problem in this space. So we need to get away from that idea that forests are an offset for emissions. Thank you to both of you. Now, we wanted to raise some of those points with Shell. The company is just about to work with Forestry and Land Scotland. That's a public agency which works to protect 640,000 hectares of Scotland's national forest. Alex Neville is the General Manager of Nature Based Solutions at Shell and he's with us now. 
Alex, before we get to that, how do you respond to this idea that by planting trees or giving the impression that tree plantation is a way to address climate change, we are divorcing ourselves from the immediate urgency of the issue. There's nobody in Shell that claim nature-based solutions is the only solution to climate change. It is not the silver bullet and you won't find anyone, certainly in my team or in the greater organisation, claiming that. Ultimately, you have to look at the sum of the parts. I'm a great believer in technology delivering on climate change. And we see evidence of that all around us today. So we see increased investment in wind and solar, that now becoming more more competitive and is being rolled out. We see more battery electric vehicles on the road. And all this is most needed. But of course, it will take time for that to be rolled out at the global level. Then we have other parts of the energy mix, um, energy demand, where there aren't the technical solutions to a low carbon solution today. Aviation is a good example, but there's also other parts of heavy industry that still rely on high intensity heat that you can only get from oil and gas today. So we've got this gap in how we deliver that low carbon future to deliver on Paris. And then you look around us and you look around where we are today and we've talked about the potential for nature and the opportunity that nature brings as a contributor to that. So our nature-based solutions business is grounded in Paris, in the Paris Agreement, and the need for society to move to a lower carbon energy future. It plays strongly to Shell's net carbon footprint ambition, where the company has set out the need for it to lower the carbon intensity of its portfolio by 50 percent by 2050 with an interim target of 20 percent by 2035. Now the important thing about those statistics is that that is an end-to-end so it encompasses not only the emissions from our own assets and operations but also from the use and consumption of our products by our customers and it's that last part that represents about 85 percent of the overall. So nature-based solutions is essentially now another alternative solutions that we are able to offer customers as part of an increased portfolio to enable them to themselves go on their low carbon energy transition journey. And we very much place this within the the hierarchy of what we say is avoid, reduce, mitigate. So of course, wherever we can, we look to avoid emissions. Where that's not always possible, then we push the reduce button as far as we can. So we reduce the emissions associated with the product. And then, of course, um, as I mentioned earlier, there are other parts of the demand energy mix which are not, you know, where there aren't solutions available today. And that's where the mitigate um, play comes in. So this is around the, the otherwise hard-to-abate sectors. So if I take, for example, a motorist here in the UK... Motorists here in the UK can avoid emissions if they have a battery electric car. They can recharge at Shell. Um, In future, there'll be more and more hydrogen availability for those driving fuel cell vehicles. Within the reduced bracket, we continue to blend sustainable biofuels, and that has an improved, reduced carbon footprint over the petrol or diesel equivalent. And then finally, when it comes to the mitigate, for those who continue for 
whatever their personal circumstances and reasons may be, who continue to drive an internal combustion engine, then we're able to offer carbon neutral fuels where the impact of their use of those fuels has been offset by nature-based solutions. Alex, there'll be people listening to this wondering, is it the business of business to be getting involved in this kind of thing? You know, stick to your knitting, you do oil and gas, do that, what are you doing in forestry? Yeah, my response to that is, it's absolutely the business of business to be getting involved in moving to a lower carbon energy future. And it's particularly uh, when you say, stick to what you do, this is what we do. We provide and we need to do more increasingly lower carbon energy solutions for our customers. What do you say to those who argue that this is just another way to justify the continued use of fossil fuels? Well, I hope I've already addressed that in the in the earlier question about um, that this is one of a number of responses to um, the, the challenge of, of climate change, and it's absolutely not the only one. Um, but the reason why it's important um, is, as, as I mentioned, because it's available at scale today, um, and it allows us to be doing something while we bring the other solutions to bear, both at scale or even actually to get them in place in the first place. Thanks, Alex. Natalie and Duncan mentioned some of the projects that are taking place to implement nature-based solutions around the world, so we thought we'd do some forest hopping ourselves. Let's cross over now to the Netherlands. Thanks, Knarf. I'm Catherine Kerr. I'm about 60 kilometres outside Amsterdam in a city called Amersfoort. It's the Netherlands' greenest city, and it's home to HQ of Stadsbosbeheer, the independent Dutch state forestry service. Now the rain has just about stayed away, the sun's in and out, it's bouncing off the buildings and um, glittering through the lovely autumnal trees here in the park just opposite HQ. And I'm joined by Silvo Tyson, the chief executive of Stadsbotsbeheer. Silvo, thank you so much for having me. Tell me a little bit about what Stadsbotsbeheer does, because it's a little bit different to the forestry service we recognise in the UK, for example. Stadsbotsbeheer is uh, 120 years old. Uh, established to reclaim and to uh, make large reforestation plants in, in, in de- degraded landscapes. Nowadays in the, we have a very broad uh, scope of activities on recreation, tourism, maintaining uh, listed monuments, the forests of course, uh, but also we manage 40,000 hectares of, of arable land and agricultural land. So it's a quite uh, broad scope of uh, land management uh, in the Netherlands. You're partnering with Shell. Can you explain what the background to that is uh, and your yeah. goals? Yeah, the, the background of the, our cooperation with Shell is, is uh, very concrete. We have a disease in the ash trees, plantations in the Netherlands. Um, That's ash dieback, right? Ash dieback, exactly. It's, it's, it's common. Yeah. I must say, in, in northwestern Europe yeah. as a whole. So, But, uh, yes, the Bosbeer and the Netherlands has a lot of ash trees, so it's affecting us uh, in a severe way. And in one way or the other, we are looking for, for funding to replant because, of course, we want to restore and to provide in carbon capture, but also restore the landscape. Yeah. So we are looking for several ways of funding, and one of the, the, the main and first actors was Shell and we are very glad that they made that step towards us and uh, are really um, interested uh, for uh, the next decade to invest in uh, and solve this particular problem in the Netherlands. And you're not replanting ash 
Are you? No, we are not replanting ash. No, we are, we are looking for uh, another composition of trees. It will be mixed deciduous forest, uh, where the composition of the tree species is in that way that it will have a double carbon dioxide capture uh, compared to a monoculture of ashes. This sudden excitement around the idea that trees can capture carbon and that actually planting may be a solution to our climate crisis. Is that something new now? Is it something particularly special now? Yes, of course not new. It is uh, now in, in, in the hot spot of the public interest, of course, due to the, the, the Paris uh, summit, the, the, the New York Climate Action Summit, uh, the IPCC uh, reports, and we see awareness. And yes, trees are long-term security for carbon captures. Uh, other, every other means is, has a shorter cycle. So if you consider the chains where carbon can be captured, then you try to look for an object or an instrument which is in itself very defined, like a tree which for 80, 100, 120 years can solve this question. That's why trees are now in the hotspot of the carbon dioxide discussion. And contrasting the amount of forest and land cover that the Netherlands has compared to, say, South America, and it's a very different set of issues and and, and challenges there, how do you think those two things can match up? And and what do you think the role is of of this comparatively small country? Yeah, you're you're quite... uh, Quite a good question, of course. Um, we are very re- realistic, so we are covering with with eight percent of our land cover is is forest or, or natural areas, and the Netherlands, Netherlands in itself is, of course, on a world scale, very very small. But I think the Netherlands can export a transfer knowledge to uh, have a far more efficient land use and a far more efficient land conservation system which includes nature er- natural areas and forests. And of course today we are talking quite specifically aren't we about planting trees to offset carbon emissions but wh- whose responsibility do you think is then where does the buck stop with taking responsibility for offsetting yeah, it's carbon all, emissions? Of, of course uh, our own at the end it's us, it's us, it's you, it's me where the ultimate responsibility is. So it would be very good if we all plant our tree ourselves, not only as a child, but maybe every year one small tree would be good for mankind. Silvo, thank you so much for having me here. It's been great to come and meet you. And the rain's actually just beginning to start again, so we might have to dip back inside and dry off. But um, thanks so much for having me. And it's been great hearing about Scotland here. So let's go back to Cunard in the UK. Well, back here in the UK, we're still in the forest and I'm still with my guests, Natalie Seddon, Alex Neville and Duncan McLeod. Natalie, biodiversity, it's a term we hear a lot. Can you give us a little sense of actually, what does it actually mean? Well, it's been lovely. This has been a great place to have this this important conversation. We can hear lots of different bird species calling. We've got woodpeckers, jackdaws, buzzards are calling. We're surrounded by, you know, an understory that's alive with lots of insects and butterflies. We've got damselflies in here. And it's, it's sort of, um, you know, lots of different species of trees. And all these different species are all performing different roles and important roles in the ecosystem, which contribute to it. And what lots of 
in science that's been conducted over the last 40 years has shown us that that diversity is really important in securing the flow of ecosystem services in the face of change. So we need lots of different species in an ecosystem to ensure that you know any one species or set of species is doing its job. And you know, lots of experimental studies in grasslands particularly, but also in, in woodlands and forests across the world show that if you increase the numbers of species, so you get a, a more stable and productive ecosystem. I mean, this discussion just points to this truth, doesn't it, Duncan? There's so much more when you look at it in terms of the challenge than just a massive international tree planting programme. Absolutely. And picking up on what Natalie said just there, the carbon storage of a mature ecosystem is often higher if it is biodiverse but it's still limited there's still a peak amount it's not going to go on sinking carbon forever so when we think about that in terms of climate policy we have to ask what is it we're using that for and at the global scale we're going to need to take carbon out of the atmosphere. I find it really quite worrying to think about using that capacity to placate Dutch or English drivers. It feels like papal indulgences, pay a penny a litre and you can drive without a guilty conscience. No, I, I, I don't think that is what we want to do to commoditize nature as a way to allow people to go on driving when there are alternatives. It's about offering options um, to customers. So, and again, I talked through the, the example of, of, of a driver. Um, Nature-based solutions, carbon offsets, is not the only one that we offer. So we, we are rolling out more recharge points for those that have electric battery electric vehicles we are doing more in hydrogen we are looking to do more in sustainable biofuels but ultimately it's the customer's choice depending on their particular circumstances now that might sound like a cop-out but that's the reality of it Um, and we look to provide the solutions that enable our customers wherever they are in their particular circumstances to then either go carbon neutral or zero carbon. Natalie? Really, really wonderful to hear and very interesting to hear. And I certainly think, you know, yeah, corporate engagement with nature-based solutions is very important so long as we're really clear on, on those biodiversity safeguards, on the social safeguards. And um, when we talk about scalable, I mean, that, that sort of has some implies somewhat that there is you know a one-size-fits-all when it comes to nature-based solutions and that really isn't the case what we're really talking about is a is a federation a, a kind of a of small-scale projects and that's the investment in those small-scale community-led projects is really what's really what's only going to work over the long term but who's going to drive that like somebody needs to preside over that happening otherwise it's just a load of disparate projects trying to work together do governments take it seriously enough do you think in terms of climate planning there's lots of high level pledges for nature based solutions i mean 66% of paris agreement signatures include nature based solutions in one form or another but the devil's always in the detail and when you look at the detail of some of those pledges you realize that a lot of it is for monoculture single species plantations and new crops and that's not actually a restoration that's not over the long term going to help duncan at the risk of sort of opening a whole other can of worms, I think what 
we're seeing in what Natalie's saying is the need for a very different sort of economy, much more a peer-to-peer economy, a, a decentralised economy. And <laughs> I'm sorry to sort of harp on about this, but this seems the absolute opposite to an economy for nature-based solutions where the value of them is determined by Shell's customers. And it gives the impression it can be solved for a tiny amount of money, a little margin on what we're paying. So should Shell just not do it at all? Well, quite possibly not. I think Shell should be perhaps philanthropically investing in nature-based solutions. I wouldn't stop the work. It's a wonderful set of schemes and it seems to be respecting the environmental and social aspects of the problem as well. But selling them as offsets... Yeah, I would argue that Shell shouldn't do that. If we as consumers think we can solve climate change for a a penny or a few pence a litre on on goods and services, then we're not going to be prepared to pay the real costs that are up front. When it comes to um, making aviation low carbon or when it comes to making steel low carbon, a whole transformation of industries. They might not cost much in the consumer purse, but they're they're big costs up front. Changes in our lifestyle, changes in our diet, all these things can contribute much more rapidly to solving or tackling the climate change problem. And are individuals invested enough at the moment to make those changes of their own accord? I mean, flying, for example, seems to be on the rise. You're right to point to this as a real challenge. But I think that painting it as a consumer problem, we've done that for 20 or 30 years, clearly hasn't worked. All the evidence I see and all the evidence from social science seems to be that if we see it and understand it as a collective problem to be solved politically through collective action, then we have a chance. Alex? Natalie and Duncan have you know, mentioned you know, the potential, mentioned that this is nothing new, this has been around for decades, centuries, and certainly from a nature-based solutions perspective, the progress that has been made so far Uh, is largely as a result of philanthropy and government funding. But if we're really serious about this as a society, if we're really serious about capturing that opportunity and the potential that that nature presents, not only from a climate change, but also the other um, important considerations that, again, Natalie and Duncan mentioned around ecosystem services, around biodiversity and around social livelihoods, then we need to be developing economic models that enable the private sector to invest um, and to unlock the investment required to do this at the scale required. Now I've talked a lot about customers and the importance of customers and certainly to a um, a business like Shell but everything I've described has been in the voluntary market. So this is customers willingly dipping into their pocket to pay for their impact. But you know if we're really serious about this we need a price on carbon. And then with that, and a sensible carbon price, higher than it is today, so that when a customer comes to us, the true value of that carbon is reflected in the price. But to get to that point, that's when we're into regulations, and that's where governments are that important. Absolutely. It's voluntary markets today. We're seeing compliance markets emerge, but we need more of that, and we would embrace that. 
It's been a fascinating day talking trees and our climate future. Thank you very much to all our guests. The Energy Podcast was produced by Fresh Air Production, and I must remind you that the views you've heard today are those of the people featured and not the Shell Group or its affiliates. From me, Kunal Dutta, thank you for listening and goodbye.